Right now, talking about crime. And if you are a small business owner, you know that you have enough to deal with without having to deal with thieves, people who break windows, who steal things. But that is exactly what the owner of the Marquee Wine Cellars was met with when he arrived at work recently. And John Clarides is joining us on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, I saw the photo that you put out on Twitter, on social media. So when did this happen? Uh, yesterday morning at about 5.57, 5.58 a.m. And what happened and, and what did you see? For people who haven't seen the photo, describe for us what you were greeted with when you got to the wine shop. Uh, well, I was actually woken up by my alarm company because um, our building is, is monitored. And then I looked on my phone and saw the police car out front. So I thought... It, this is definitely not a false alarm. So big gaping, you know, our front window, which is eight or nine feet high and five and a half feet across, completely blown out. Um, and when I looked at the security video, what they had done is taken a butane torch, the kinds that chefs use, put it at the bottom of the window. And what that does is uh, reduces the temper of the glass and it shatters. And inside my shop, was our brand new electric branded e-bike that we do deliveries with in the West End and downtown because, of course, you know, the mayor and city council want us to do bikes, and that $6,000 bike was stolen. So now we have crack addicts being able to cruise around quite comfortably stealing on a brand new electric e-bike because they get to use bike lanes too. Well, hopefully someone will see the bike. I know that's probably not the the number one priority right now, but we have seen a a fair number of them be recovered. But it's got to, the way you describe that too. So this, whoever did this, like you said, you have surveillance footage of this. You have an armed store with an alarm company. I'm sure there's a sign on the door, on the window that says these premises are monitored and that didn't deter this thief at all. 20 seconds and it's done. It's, done, it's over. It happens so quickly. The wine is too heavy and it's too small. The bike is, uh, um, you know, the, the, the item that they want. So they can't get, the police can't, unless they're driving by, they cannot get there in time. Just It just won't happen. They're too busy doing other things. And the just on my block alone, across the street at 1033 Davy, a Bassa Optical, their front window, their, one of their windows is smashed. One of the other merchants, two doors away from me, their window is smashed, and just up the street, uh, a little restaurant called Faux, their window is smashed. Uh, and over the last few months, you know, I get the West End Business Improvement Association emails, and there's a preponderance or plethora of broken windows. And then my favorite pen store on Hastings Street, their window has been broken five times um, by, by, uh, by thieves. A, a pen store, did you say? Yeah, the Vancouver Pen Shop. Their window has been broken. Their whole front entrance has been broken five times Which, since COVID started. And not at all to, to, to suggest that that making any excuses, but I, you can kind of piece it together. Uh, a, thief, a thief that's going for a crime of opportunity, maybe they looked in your window and saw this expensive e-bike and thought, okay, yeah. this is where I'm going to focus. I'm going to get that bike. But what are, they, what are they doing five times? What are they taking from a pen store? I don't know. You're going to have to ask them. I mean, they, they do have some expensive pens, but uh, I'm not sure what they took. The point, the point being is, though, Vancouver has turned into a relatively unsafe place um, with our current council. And in fact, uh, you know, I'll 
the, the, the blame squarely on our mayor, Kennedy Stewart. He's really done nothing. All you see him on Twitter is, you know, he's at the P&E or, uh, you know, congratulations to other people. But there's nothing concrete that's happening. We're a haven. We're just an absolute haven and a destination place for people who want to do crime because it pays. Nothing happens to them. Zero. And we're the ones left holding the bag on a daily basis. And it's not, I'm sure you've talked to other merchants in other areas as well, because it's certainly not only Davie Street or Davie Village where your shop is. I see it when I walk to work on Granville Street, broken windows constantly, business owners who are out there boarding up those windows in the mornings as well. So when you say that this council has done nothing, what do you think would be a first step or what steps would you like to see the council do? You know, at, at the highest level, and this is up for a different conversation, a different time, there's an organization in Europe called San Patriano, and it's all privately funded. They take in the drug addicts, they teach them one of 22 different trades, and the program lasts um, uh, between, they stay in there between two and five, uh, two and four years. And the recidivism rate is really, really low. We don't have anything like that here. And the number one key thing, this is all privately funded, number one key thing is that there's no government involvement. Because as soon as the government comes in, things just, there's, there's fiefdoms and there's all sorts of issues. But in the meantime, uh, something has to be done. Uh, you know, I don't know how full the jails are. Uh, I don't know if the, if the police can go in and just take take the things because they know they're they know they're stolen. There's no income for these people, so they know everything they have is stolen, uh, and there's 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 records of it. And we need to come. To, we, we're just a destination place, and something something has to be done. How much will this break in cost you? I, I would imagine you have insurance, but even with the time and what what happens now. Well, you know, it's probably going to cost me $7,000 by the time it's, you know, all said and done. I do have insurance, and I have a conversation with my uh, insurance uh, broker right now, so, you know, it will be covered. But that's really not the point. Right. Um, you know, it, it's just it's just a constant assault on small business. And, you know, our, our family's been down in the West End since 1958. And I've never, and I've been on Davies, working on Davies Street since 1977. I've never seen it like this, ever, ever. It's just brutal. And, you know, we have counselors meeting at council meetings, believe it or not. Yeah. Um, no, you know? no, we've, we've seen that, definitely. Has it gotten worse than, than since the pandemic started? Oh, absolutely it has. Absolutely it has. It, it, and, and, uh, especially since the city has bought all the single room hotel uh, SROs to uh, a lot on Granville Street, I used to walk to Granville Street to um, go to my gym, and I don't. I would walk down Hornby Street now. It's it's not pleasant going down there early in the morning, six or seven in the morning. So I just go down Hornby Street. Um, they've they you know they've they've managed to uh, turn Vancouver into a beautiful destination place with people with uh, drug addiction. They really haven't done anything meaningful to get them off of it and on a permanent basis. And it's certainly back to San Patriano, but that's a different, again, different conversation. All right. Well, John, thanks so much. I'm sorry that this happened to you, but thanks for, right. for joining us to talk more about it and to pay My more pleasure. attention to this.
Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. We were just talking with John Clarides. He is the owner of Marquee Wine Cellars on Davy Street in Vancouver. He was the victim of a break-in thieves taking. He said it took about 20 seconds in total. They smashed the front glass windows. They took a $6,000 e-bike that he had just purchased to do some environmentally friendly wine deliveries and off they go. And certainly that is not an isolated incident. As he mentioned, many other businesses on Davy Street in that area have had their their windows smashed numerous times. I've seen smashed windows almost daily, it seems, on Granville Street, below where we're located in downtown Vancouver. So what is the solution, or how do we even start tackling this? Joining me now is Tom Stamatakis, president of the Canadian Police Association. Thanks so much for being with us. You're welcome. I know you responded to John Clarides and to the pictures online. What is your response to this? Well, it struck a nerve because it just happened that on the same day I'd been at another business with the same issue, smashed in window, and uh, there was an older person leaving the, the store that I was in at the same time as I was leaving, and it struck me at how she reacted to the smashed window. You could see she was visibly um, affected by it, and and so so when I saw the the message from John, it, it sort of struck a nerve, and I thought, we really need to do something, and given that the city and the province have been, you know, really uh, focused on acquiring properties uh, to help to house people who are struggling with uh, homelessness, uh, people who are suffering from serious mental health issues and addiction issues, or or often both, um, and concentrating those those premises in the downtown area, but seemingly without providing appropriate support so that people, for example, who are suffering from mental health issues are getting some supervision so that they, they're getting the kind of treatment that they need or, uh, you know, we're not responding to the addictions issues that we're challenged with in the city in, in an effective way. Um, it just seems to me that something has to be done. And I know over my policing career, you know, we've often had... Uh, beat teams uh, working in in these high traffic areas uh, where there are a lot of businesses that are often targeted for whether it's by different types of disorder or mischief or break and enters. Um, you know that's one solution. I don't think it's a permanent solution, and I don't think it's a long term solution. But in the meantime, you have to do something to allow businesses to continue to operate, to continue to invest, to continue to provide jobs. And you have to do something that, that, that encourages people to feel safe in the community and, and go about their business. And what we've seen in Vancouver since about 2010 after the Olympics is consistent reductions um, in terms of staffing and, and budgeting to the police service. So, you know, we've eliminated those beat teams that used to work in the Granville Mall and on Davy Street and in other high traffic areas. And I, I just think we need to rethink uh, the approach. Because you're right, even though it might give people a sense of being safer if they see more officers on the streets, if officers are, are arresting more people, it's it's going to be cyclical. We're not going to actually stop the problem or, or deal with the problem. John Clarides talked about treatment and that uh, that if people that were dealing with addiction and mental health issues or homelessness were able to get treatment, he, he seemed to think that that would at least be something to help people. Do you think that's something that's lacking as well? 
Well, 100%. I mean, over my policing career I, and, and certainly in my various roles uh, advocating on behalf of police members, um, you know, I've been involved in the discussion around, uh, you know, harm reduction and drug addiction and, and related issues in this city for many, many years. And what we have consistently seen is a lack of investment in terms of capacity around detox, around treatment, around uh, counseling. Um, so, you, you know, you can't say we want to respond and help people but then not build the capacity um, to be able to give access when people do need detox or they do need treatment. But the policing solution is not about arresting people. Like I said, that's not a permanent long-term solution. It's about um, having some presence, which we know from research has a deterring effect on crime and disorder. uh, And the police can play a role in facilitating getting people to the right resources. This is not an issue that we're going to arrest our way out of or where arresting people needs to be the focus. That should be the last thing we do. Uh, but it is about building capacity to provide support to people who are struggling with, like I said, mental health issues or addiction issues or both, uh, so that there are um, you know, spaces for treatment, for detox, for other resources that might help people uh, and, and provide an opportunity for them to get the, what they need without resorting to breaking into businesses like John's or, or, or doing other things that are really undermining the quality of life in our city. Uh, John mentioned, too, that he's noticed a big decline. You talked about after uh, the 2010 Olympics, he talked about a big decline that he's noticed during the pandemic. Uh, have, have you also heard from officers or, or what is your response that, that he and other businesses have said during this pandemic things have gotten much, much worse? Well, I completely agree. I live in this city. I've lived in this city for for a long time. I raised my family in this city. I visit businesses in different parts of the city, all the things that the city has to offer. I've noticed a significant decline in the last 18 months to two years. And that is really a function of, of policy decisions that have been made to locate uh, supportive housing, what they call supportive housing, or housing um, capacity in a small part of our city, which happens to be the downtown area, without providing the the accompanying uh, supports that are necessary to support people who have a lot of challenges in that housing so that they're not uh, resorting to breaking into businesses or uh, assaulting people or... Um, engaging in other types of disorder that really affect the quality of life for all citizens, particularly those that live in the downtown area. All right. Tom Stamatakis, we're out of time, so we'll have to leave it there for today. But thanks so much for joining us to talk about this. You're very welcome. We talked a little bit about this on the show yesterday. We were just getting details while we were on the air. A very sad story coming out of Kamloops. A 70-year-old woman passed away while she was in the waiting room waiting for care at Royal Inland Hospital. She was in the ER there on Wednesday morning. One of her daughters has been speaking out, saying that her sister took her mother to the hospital around 8 p.m. Tuesday evening. Her mom was complaining of some stomach pains. Said she was checked. They did her vitals. Checked that found she had low potassium levels. But around 2 o'clock in the morning, 
The sister said that it appeared that her mom had some kind of uh, slowing of her pulse. She didn't look good and she passed away shortly after, again, still in the emergency room of that hospital. Since those details were released, we've been hearing about shortages at Royal Inland Hospital, saying that that hospital is currently suffering from an acute nursing shortage, especially in the emergency department, where we're told about two-thirds of the staff have reportedly either resigned or transferred out of that department because of burnout. As of yesterday, 13 of the 17 intensive care beds were occupied by COVID-19 patients. So let's talk a little bit more about this with Mike Old, who is a spokesperson with the Hospital Employees Union. Mike, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thanks, Jill. I know your union doesn't represent nurses, but you do represent a lot of workers in the hospital, and they must also be stressed out and very much impacted by this. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I just want to extend our condolences to the to the family and friends of the woman who unfortunately died in the ER. It's a real tragedy. Um, yeah, it, there's no question, Jill, like uh, workers in the healthcare system right now are 18 months into a pandemic, and they are really, really stressed out. And I think that's uh, even more so the case in the interior in communities like Kamloops, where they've been dealing with uh, the wildfire situation. There's been lots of uh, patients and residents of long-term care who've been moving in and out of various communities, including Kamloops. And yeah, people are really stressed. What do you do in scenarios like that? And again, I know that your union doesn't represent nurses, but I think I had seen uh, the number out there where generally, say if there were there were supposed to be 11 or 12 nurses on shift and there were only seven or eight, or there were, was almost half of the number that were supposed to be there. What does that do for your workers then when there there isn't enough, there aren't enough workers in, in one field? Well, as you said, we don't represent the nurses at Royal Inland Hospital, but uh, generally speaking, what happens is workers are redeployed from another part of the hospital, which, uh, you know, it has a bit of a domino effect. And in this case, I believe that redeployment to the ER probably is the reason why a lot of the elective surgeries have been cancelled at Royal Inland Hospital. In terms of uh, our members, I mean, there's a very diverse team of healthcare workers at Royal Inland and you know, we know that uh, there have been serious staffing issues on every floor in every department. And, uh, you know, one of the things that's happened is uh, workers who have put in a lot of overtime, both because of COVID and because of the wildfires, they they cannot get any approval to take some of that time off. And I think it's really taking, an, you know, it's taking and uh, having a big impact on people's mental health. They don't have an opportunity to... Um, you know, relax, recharge their batteries, spend some time with their families. Um, You know, uh, getting ready to talk to you today, I was talking to one of our stewards at Royal Inland, and uh, my heart rate was going up just talking to this steward. You can just hear the stress in people's voices. They're really at the end of their rope. Are you seeing then people as well resign or leave the profession they're in? I generally have not heard that a lot of our members are leaving healthcare right now, but you know I, we do have a big uh, fear that in the months and years ahead that there will be a tsunami of uh, sort of mental health issues that people experience because of the you know because of the stress of the situation that they've been through for the last 18 months. It's been very trying on people.
And do you see any end to that in that we're, we're still seeing hospitalizations from COVID-19 going up? People, uh, the numbers in the ICU are going up. We know that the bulk and that information was finally released by the BC government yesterday. They released the actual ages and vaccination record, not the records, but whether or not somebody had been vaccinated and, right. and show it showed the bulk of people that are in hospital and in ICU are not vaccinated. If, if that's going to continue, do work workers in hospitals feel any sense of getting that break that they so need? Well, I, I, that, that's what one of our stewards said to me today. It's like we're entering into a fourth wave. People can't see their way to the end of this. Uh, it's been a very long 18 months, and it's, it's very frustrating when, um, you know, the hospital becomes backed up because there are folks in there who uh, were not vaccinated and have ended up in the ICU. Now, you know, uh, Healthcare workers are, are are people who are compassionate and committed, and they will provide good care to everybody who comes into that hospital. But, you know, if folks in the community want to give our healthcare workers a break um, and they have not been vaccinated, they really need to go seek reliable sources of information, talk to their doctor, talk to the BC Centre for Disease Control, get informed and get vaccinated because that will help the situation a lot. Do you think it would change the minds of people or would it be a positive step in that we know in long-term care, workers in that part of the healthcare system will need to be vaccinated uh, by October, by the date in October. But some people might see that and think, well, if people that work in acute care, and I know we think it's coming, but if people that work in hospitals or acute care, if there's not a vaccine mandate for people that work in hospitals, uh, could that lead to others being hesitant? Well, I think it's been pretty clearly signaled by the health minister and the provincial health officer that a vaccine requirement is coming to the rest of healthcare. We don't know exactly what that will look like, but I think it's pretty clear that that requirement will be across the system. And what kind of a response do you anticipate from members of the HEU? Well, HEU members are generally well vaccinated. Our own polling indicates to us that in excess of 90% of our members have had had the vaccination. And I think as we draw closer to the sort of uh, important dates around the vaccine mandate, so anybody who wants to meet the October 12th deadline will have to get their first vaccination by September the 13th. I think that number will only grow and I think it'll be a fairly small number who aren't vaccinated at the end of the day and uh, we're, we're hoping that it's quite small. All right. Well, Michael, thanks so much for coming on the program to talk about this uh, today. I appreciate your time once again. Really appreciate the opportunity, Jill. Good afternoon. We have been talking about overworked healthcare workers. We talked about Royal Inland Hospital and a very sad situation there yesterday. And there have been a lot, uh, there has been a lot of talk about the treatment of COVID-19 patients. And we got a breakdown yesterday of how many people are in hospital who are vaccinated and not vaccinated. Vaccinated. The biggest group was the 50 to 59 year olds at 27 of the people, 60 to 69 year olds, 26 of, of the bulk of the full number of people that are in hospital right now. But those are the numbers of people in those age groups who are not vaccinated. So what exactly are the costs of the treatment? Well, joining me now is Ann Chapman, Director of Spending with Primary Care and Strategic Initiatives with the Canadian Institute for Health Information. Thank you so much for being with us. 
Hello, Jill. Thank you so much for inviting me to talk about this report. Well, we don't. We so rarely talk about the breakdown of what things cost in our healthcare system, but this is a really interesting breakdown specifically of the cost. It's the estimated average cost of a hospital stay for somebody with COVID-19. So can you run us through some of the, some of the numbers? For sure. Um, so on about an annual basis, the Canadian Institute for Health Information does publish numbers on hospital uh, costs across the country. We do that every year. What's new in this particular year is that we have done the specific analysis looking at what is the cost of the COVID-19 patients. And as you uh, mentioned, the average estimated cost for COVID-19 patients in hospital is $23,000. And what we want to look at is, can, can we give some context around that number? So we looked at comparing it to influenza, pneumonia, heart attack, which are more common conditions that we think of. And we know that when COVID-19 first came out, we were thinking of it as a flu, pneumonia, et cetera. So what we know is a, the cost for a hospitalization for a COVID-19 patient is three times that of a heart attack, which is around $7,400. And we know it is three times more expensive than a, than a patient being treated for pneumonia, which is around $8,400, and it is about four times more expensive than a patient that is being treated for influenza, which is around 5000 And we also then looked at a kidney transplant, what kind of costs are involved in a kidney transplantation, and those costs around 27000 which, as you can see relative to the others, is a little bit more in line with the 23000 cost for the hospitalization for a patient um, that has covid so we do know that the longer you stay in hospital, the more expensive it is. So a, a, uh, on average, length of stay for a patient, COVID-19 patient in hospital is 15 days. If they, that COVID-19 patient is in the ICU, we know that the person there is on average there for another week, so at least 21 days. That's a long time in the ICU in hospital. And we do know that about 60% of those patients that are in the ICU are ventilated. So you add up a complex illness, an illness that requires you to be at the hospital a long time, um, possibly in the ICU with ventilation, that is where those costs are. Hmm. It's interesting to look at it that way and and compare it like you did to some other uh, things such as heart attacks, uh, influenza, that kind of thing. What are you hoping people take from this when they hear these numbers? Mm -hmm. So I think what we... What we want people to realize is that if a patient is sick with COVID-19 as in the hospital and is in the hospital, they're very sick. They need a lot of care. And these figures speak to that um, complexity of this particular virus and the illness and the number of resources that are needed to treat those patients, whether they're in ICU or not. And it's really that awareness that if you're sick enough to be in the hospital, you're very sick. And how does it compare, or did you look at it, how it fits into hospital spending in total as far as what the provinces spend on healthcare? Yes. So um, what we know so far is in the last fiscal year, so 2020 to 2021, um, Canada's hospitals have spent about a billion dollars, over a billion dollars, treating COVID-19 patients. That figure does not include Quebec data. That was not available at this time. 
We do know if we look at all of hospital spending, it's around $55 billion, and that was a year ago. So coming out this fall, we will have numbers that we'll be looking at that most recent year of data, looking at what have we been spending in um, spending in hospitals for that entire year. So the COVID-19, the $1 billion, is just one piece of that larger puzzle. And do you think too, or I, I'm guessing it doesn't break it down, or maybe we'll be getting this information for, further along. I mean, there are some people who are still being hospitalized uh, who are partially vaccinated and still have enough of the illness that, they, that they're going into hospital. But do we know if their hospital stays, the treatment is shorter or they don't require as much, or I guess they wouldn't, I think from what we're seeing already, they don't require as much uh, admitting into the ICU. Mm-hmm. I don't have that data looking at a um, distribution of, of the cost for patients that are vaccinated or unvaccinated. But if we think of the costs are driven by the length of stay, the complexity of the um, virus, other comorbid conditions, those are conditions that the patient also presents with beyond um, just COVID, those things will factor in as well as whether there's an ICU admission and use of ventilation. So it's really what is involved, excuse me, in the patient's care that will determine what the costs are. And do you hope to people will look at this? Because on the one hand, people might look at this and say, well, that's that's just the way it is. And we live in Canada where we don't see the hospital bills. And you. But mm-hmm. one of the great things is you go into hospital and you don't have to worry about the cost of it. Or people will look at it more as a responsibility. If you can prevent yourself from ending up in the hospital, you should. I think it's both. I think it is an awareness. As you mentioned, we often don't know, we don't understand what are those costs that we incur when we participate in um, services in the healthcare system. So information like this is about awareness, letting people know that, as we said, an average cost of a COVID-19 patient in hospital is 23000 if they're in the ICU and more than doubles at 50000 Just awareness of that compared to some of the other illnesses just speaks to how severe this pandemic is if you are end up in hospital. All right. We will leave it there for today. Anne Chapman, thank you so much for joining us and for breaking down these numbers for us. Thank you so much, Jill. Take care.